you thank the guys for leading us in worship today? And Jamie, we call this band Jamie and the Guys, so uh, <laughs> it's very cool. She managed to put up with all those guys all week long in rehearsals, so we're looking forward to seeing how this plays out next service, all right, she, if she can handle them one more time. I want you to take your Bible, please, this morning and turn to Isaiah chapter 54. As I say each week, if you don't have a Bible, you'll find this one on the pew rack in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, take that one home as our gift to you today. We'd be glad if you would have that. While you're looking for Isaiah, it's about halfway through the Bible, a little bit past halfway. You can find the page numbers on the screen behind me. This week I was spending some time with a dear friend, and um, he, he said, Wayne, how is it that you got to travel all those places that you did, and what was it like? And to make a long story short, for those who are new with us today, Prior to uh, going into pastoral ministry, uh, I spent a lot of years on the road as a professional musician, and I, I'm always kind of stunned at how it all came about. I mean, one day I was a 19-year-old kid in college, and literally uh, I was approached by a band and said, would you go to Europe with us, and uh, you have to go in 10 days, and in 10 days I met them in New York, and off we went. And uh, did four tours of Europe and Africa, Saw most of the U.S. and Canada. Um, in the five years that I was on the road, we, uh, and Leslie was with me the last two and a half years, uh, we, we sang or performed in a thousand different auditoriums, which is a lot of places. That means you sleep in a thousand different beds. And uh, it was a fascinating experience. And I, I still marvel at how it all occurred and don't feel like um, I did anything special to deserve that. Uh, just was in the right place at the right time, and it was many ways life-shaping. And I don't pine for those days in any way. I'm very glad for where God has me today and where God has our family. But now and then, as I'm reflecting on Scripture and seeing what we're working with as a congregation, some of those experiences come back. And so this friend of mine said, So Wayne, uh, well, what are some of your favorite places and so in, in a spirit this morning, I hope of what you understand is my, uh, an understanding that, man, that I got to do this was quite remarkable, and I know that to take a trip to Tennessee is a big deal, and it is a big deal, uh, but some, I mean, I think I was in like 28 or 30 different countries, something like that over the years, and I'm stunned at the way in which God made that happen. One of my favorite places was, is Kruger National Park. In 1985, we were asked to go to South Africa with Youth for Christ. We spent three months in South Africa and did a tour there. Beautiful. The beaches are stunning. The people are glorious. This was before apartheid was demolished. It was a very, very difficult country. At the end of the three months, uh, Youth for Christ said, um, long story short, they basically said, hey, we're going to give you some time off. We think you should go to Kruger National Park. Here's how you get there. It took four days to drive through the park because you can only go about 20 miles an hour. If, they, if you go beyond that, you're not, you're, you're, you're not allowed to get out of your van except in designated areas. And so one day, uh, we, were, we were driving down the road and we saw this elephant off in the distance. Well, I decided we should see it a little more close up. So I, backed, I was driving a VW um, van and I backed it up right up against this elephant, uh, probably about 40 feet away and started taking you know, photographs. And 
I don't know if it was a male or a female elephant, but whatever kind of elephant it was, it suddenly didn't like the fact that we were there. And those ears came up, the trunk came up, and we, we got a trumpet blast. You better, and so we left at a very rapid pace of about 65 miles an hour. <laughs> I could go down one, one, one country after another. Finland's a fascinating place. They have really long words in Finland. Did you know that? I mean, we, we, we put three words together to say a student airplane mechanic or, or something like that. And it's a beautiful city. I mean, beautiful, Helsinki is this gorgeous place surrounded by water. And, uh, but we, they just have long words like, like, here's how you say three words in one word. Student airplane mechanic, I wish you well. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Usually after being in a nation for two or three weeks, three or four weeks, you'd, you'd kind of begin to hear the, the rhythms and the patterns. Sweet, in, in, in Finland, they, one word takes a whole week to say. So, and I always think about fourth graders learning spelling. How do they do it? Spelling bees would take a really, really long time. <laughs> Switzerland. Uh, we were there in 19, I was there in 1978. I was 20 years old. I'd just turned 20 the month prior. And um, we did a tour of Switzerland. Uh, we, again, by God's grace, we had a few days off at the end of the tour. Uh, we were there for know, a month or so at that point. And um, so we went hiking in the Alps. And then I don't know what crazy outfit allowed this to happen. But I went into a car rental agency at 20 years of age and said, I want to rent a car. And they said, fine, put your money down. Here you go. And they gave me a five-speed turbocharged Saab. Oh, oh. Let me tell you, driving that five-speed around all those bends and then hitting the accelerator and off you go. Particularly going up was fun. I mean, it was just coming down, you had to, you know, kind of lay on the brake a lot. But going up and pushing that accelerator through all those bends was a blast. Red Square in Moscow. It's another fascinating, a stark, uh, difficult place. I would say in the 70s and 80s when I was there, it was spooky and scary. So you understand, that's Red Square. I was there many times because much of our work was in Eastern Europe. And so, um, I don't know, many times in Red Square, all four seasons, summer, fall, um, winter, and spring. The picture on the right-hand side is from winter. Uh, the Kremlin is the building with the red star on top, okay? Uh, the building on the left with the, with the colored tops is the Russian Orthodox Church, where it's right there in Red Square. And then the building up on the upper left is the GUM, G-U-M, department store, a very, very large department store that you would go in there, particularly in the late 70s, there was nothing in there. They did not have the produce to, or the ability to put any uh, retail goods in that building. In all those places, and I could go down the list more, in the places of beauty that we would see as we were literally performing around Europe and Africa, you would always find these places of beauty, but if you dug around a little bit, you'd also find stories of struggle. And you'd find the uh, underside, the underbelly, if you will, of cities, and you'd learn of where the difficulties were. And I would like to visit with you about that today. Both the beauty and the difficulties of city life. As it's found in scripture in Isaiah chapter 54. See if we can put all this together and I'll come back to this business of these beautiful places around the world. Isaiah 54, this is about 712 before, 712 years or so, 710 years before Jesus was born, okay? Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. 
Burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. And this passage of scripture is about the city of Jerusalem, so that you understand that, okay? Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. This is what we looked at last week, specifically this verse. You'll spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Don't be afraid. You won't be put to shame. Don't fear disgrace. You will be, not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I abandoned you, but with deep compassion, I'll bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. And though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken. Nor my covenant of peace removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise and your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you'll be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You'll have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. Now, as I mentioned, we looked at a brief portion of this passage last week, uh, just verse 2 and verse 3, looking at how the, where we feel God's calling us as a congregation to enlarge the tent of our being, if you will, of who we are, that we need to be dealing with the community around us. Excuse me. That we as a congregation are concerned about our community. Our community is, in, um, in many ways, a declining community. We have less population than we used to have. We are told that within the years ahead, within a 15-mile radius of First Christian Church, we could be down around about 100,000 people. We face the greatest unemployment in the state here in the city of Decatur. And there is an ethos within our city that is an ethos of where people feel downcast undervalued, and it's described this way in some settings in language that is both stunningly offensive and at the same time tragic. Namely, some people refer to Decatur as the armpit of central Illinois. I want to tell you, friends, that is not the way God views us. That is not the way God views this city. We need to understand that God views us through the eyes and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for the people of this community. Jesus died for me. He died for you. And he died for all of the friends and family members and acquaintances that you don't yet even know in this community called the Greater Decatur area. 
In light of that understanding of what God has done in our lives and what God is calling us as a church to do, last week I announced that our congregation is looking at some long-term goals. That if we are believing that within the next 10 to 12 years, God is calling us to reach 10% of the people around us, which, by the way, happens to be about 10,000 people. We want to see those people come to know Jesus Christ through the ministry endeavors of this congregation. Why? Because of all the stuff we have and because of the call of God on our lives. Bottom line. Because of the need within the community. Jesus put it, put it this way in Luke chapter 12. He said that if you've been given a lot of stuff from everyone who has been given much, much will be more will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. In other words, we, we have a lot of stuff as the congregation of First Christian Church. We have a fairly high community profile, and that profile, for the most part, is a profile that is honorable, except for that person sitting over there. No, I'm just teasing. It's the person over there. No. We have a good community profile. We, um, we have a wonderful building. We have 180 years of ministry. This pulpit, I ask that we bring this out today uh, because we don't know how old this pulpit is. Um, it's, it's, it's coming up at least on 100 years old. We have photographs from the 1920s where this, photo, where this pulpit appears. We think it probably actually goes back to the 1890s, which means that it's already, if that's the case, it's 120 years old. We have a legacy that's long enough to say we got old furniture. There are churches that don't have that. At 180 years of ministry in this community, we have one generation after another that has said, how can God use us? How can God work through us? And we are asking the same thing today. We have a decision in front of us. As a congregation, we've said, we're going to reach 10% of the community around us in the next 10 to 12 years, and it's going to take about 10,000 people. And that our city, if we can reach those 10%, our city can be turned around for the good. Scripture says it quite clearly. Look again in Isaiah chapter 54. And may I remind you that as this is being written about Jerusalem, while we can't say this is, is written about Decatur, there are certainly some parallels and some things that we can see here that we could say apply. This passage of Scripture, as I said, was written in about 712, 710 B.C., it occurred, it was written some 10 years or so, put it this way, after a horrific event occurred in the life of the Jewish people of the nation of Israel. At 1000 BC, Israel was at the height of its glory. King David was the king, and they were the military leaders of the world, the known world at that point at least. 300 years later, the kingdom had been divided. There were 12 tribes in total. Ten of them lived in the north, two lived in the south. And in 722, the Assyrians came in in the beginning of their uh, military might and power, and they literally wiped out the ten tribes in the north. Five-sixths of their nation was gone. Did you catch that? Five out of every six people were gone, wiped out, carted off in slavery, or literally killed. Ten years later, the people of Jerusalem are still in shock. If you could imagine our own nation losing five-sixths of our population within a year or so as a result of a military battle, do you think we would be impacted? Absolutely. We still are struggling, and legitimately so, to get our arms around the fact that we are involved in a war of terror that visited our world 
just a few years ago. And we lost 3,000 people to a despicable, despicable evil. We still struggle to understand how that happened. Imagine if we had lost five-sixths of our population. Not only would it demoralize us in terms of how we were living and how we felt about ourselves that we had lost that, but we would find that there would be all kinds of other disaster around us. Families would have been torn apart. We would, have been, we would be visited with economic inabilities to keep doing what we were doing. I mean, all the clients dry up, right? Education across the country was in a shambles. And while Jerusalem was still inhabited by Jewish people, those people were living in fear. And in many ways, they, you could say disaster was all around them. Yes, it may have occurred 10 years ago from their perspective, but they're still living it out. You can see how some of that living it out is described in verse 4. We're told, look again, verse 4, we're told that they were suffering shame and disgrace. In verse 7, we're told that they felt abandoned. Actually, verse 7, God says, I did abandon you. I was so disgusted with your behavior that I walked away from you. In verse 11, perhaps puts it best, they were a city lashed by storms without comfort. Verse 14 says they knew of terror. And that was their setting as Isaiah writes on behalf of God and says there are new days coming. It's not that we're going to take you back to just kind of like zero-based economics where, or a zero-based approach where we'll get you back to square one. No, Isaiah 54 says we're going to do more than get, get you back to square one. Your humiliation and disaster will be removed. It's going to be way better. Verse 10, do you see what's going to come? They're going to have peace. In verse 11, there's go, it's going to be a place of beauty again. I mean, do you read in verse 11 where they're going to have walls that are made of precious stones? And I don't know if this is metaphorically speaking or if they actually put those stones in those walls. In verse 13, we're told that the education system is going to be put back in place by God. God is going to teach the kids. In verse 14, the tyranny and the terror is going to be taken far away. It's going to be removed from you. And verse 2 and 3 puts it most clearly. It's going to be so great that you're going to have new descendants. You're going to have more children than you can imagine. It's going to be so much that you're going to have to be as if, you're, if it were a tent. You're going to have to raise the walls up of the tent and you're going to have to make it wider and longer and you're going to have to make your poles taller and you're going to have to lengthen those, those cords and they're going to have to go out further. It's going to be really good news. I think that while we can't say this is about Decatur, this is about a specific setting in the story of history, in biblical history, it's about what Jerusalem faced coming out of the Assyrian conquest of the northern tribes. Nonetheless, there are descriptions here that in many ways you could say, well, these things kind of apply to Decatur. Particularly if you were to buy into the view that many people of our community have about this city, that we're the armpit of central Illinois. That is so offensive to me and so despicable. It's beyond the pale as far as I'm concerned because any view of any person like that is exactly from the pit. It's not from an armpit, but it's from the pit of hell itself. And it is not the view of God. It is not the view of God in any way. We may be a city that is lashed by the storms of poverty or unemployment, racism and struggle. We may be a city that feels at times like we've been abandoned. 
But this city, by God's grace and with a work from God, will be a place of beauty, a place of peace. Our education systems can be exemplary and we can be a city of prosperity. I believe that fully if we will allow the miracle of God to work in us and through us. If I didn't believe that, I'm in the wrong business. Now, I can't do it. I can't make Decatur think that way. I can't make you think that way. You can't make people think this way. You can't make people around your neighborhood or in the places where you work rethink Decatur. You can't make 10,000 people come to know Jesus Christ. The task is too big for this church. But God can. It's far beyond our abilities, what I'm suggesting we do. But God can do this. In this regard, there's, there's a, a passage of scripture that I've kind of held on to tightly for a lot of years. Talking about what, well, you just read the scripture. It's in, it's in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. It's a passage of scripture I go to with some regularity in my prayers. It's, this is God speaking to the psalmist, and the, God says, Ask me. I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. I pray that with some regularity. Not, I mean, yes, I pray for the nations, and we're going to, in October into November, we're going to talk about some things that we're doing overseas and that sort of stuff. And, and fair enough, we are called by God to go to the up, outer ends of the, the, you know, the far reaches of the earth. But I will often, in the context of what we're talking about today, say, God, I'm asking you, humbly, I'm asking you, I'm asking for, not the nations in this prayer, but I'm asking you for this city. May this city be the inheritance of First Christian Church. May this city be our possession. And even as I pray that, and if you would echo that prayer with me this week, I'd appreciate it. Psalm 2, verse 8. As a matter of fact, I want you to open your Bible. Here's an idea. I want you to open your Bible to Psalm 2, verse 8. Today's September 21st. If you dare, write September 21st in the margin of September 21st, 2014. This is what we're praying for Decatur. And in the years ahead, when you're flipping through your Bible, I, I'm so convinced that what we're doing is called by God, that in the years ahead, you'll go back and you'll mark it. This is the day. As a matter of fact, if you've got a pew Bible, write in the pew Bible. I'm not worried about that. Write it in the Pew Bible so whoever sees it in the days ahead, they'll say, hey, what's this about? We're marking today, this weekend is the day when we're saying, we're asking for the city of Decatur to be the inheritance of this congregation. And I'm quite aware it's going to require a ton from us, a lot. Even though I say God can do this, God's going to use us to do it. And um, uh, that means if you're going to raise the, the tent flaps, you know, to do that, there's going to be many people, many, many more people. And I'm not just trying, we're going to have to birth a lot of things around here. And um, in the process of birthing, there's pain, so I've been told. <laughs> Ladies, don't listen for just a minute. Guys, is this your experience in any, at any moment where you, you walk into a room full of women and if more than one of them have had a child, 
there's birthing stories taking place. And it is the most awkward place for a man to be immediately. Does this sound familiar in any way? I mean, you go there and they start talking about pain and needles and um, heart rates and dilation. And you think that was bad? They go on. And I go, oh, can, can I leave? You know, can I get out of here? I always feel out of place because ladies don't listen. Because guys, in this day and age, I want to scream out, hey, I was there too. <laughs> ladies, you can listen now. Because invariably those stories paint the men as, well, you know, we're just wallpaper on the wall. We're along for the ride, so to speak. <laughs> I'm joking, of course, but there is a lot of pain involved in birthing, isn't there? And birthing more children for God, getting more people to follow Jesus Christ, getting more people to take a better approach to their understanding of this community's life, it's going to be hard. I wish ministry was easy. I wish ministry was a walk in the park. You know, I wish ministry always ended. Hey, we get to go to Kruger National Park and see the, trump, see the elephant's trumpet. Uh, it doesn't always turn out. As a matter of fact, if you look at Scripture, if you look at the story of the men and women who followed God into big adventures of the past, it was tough. It was really tough. For example, in Acts chapter 16, I want you to turn there. Okay, in Acts chapter 16, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels, are the beginning Gospels of the New Testament, the, the biographies of Jesus, and then you get to Acts, okay? Acts chapter 16. You got this story about a guy by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul, if you will, the, not the first, but certainly a very, very important figure within the early church in terms of mission work and doing really cool things and kind of a primary, premier New Testament guy after Jesus. And this is what he and his team do is they're going to go into missions and do some things for God. They've got this really cool plan that they're going to go to Asia and do really good ministry there. Because you know what? Somebody said, you know, the Lake District of Asia is really sweet. And after we do ministry, we can go sit by the lake and we get in a little canoe and we can paddle out and just go, oh, this is gorgeous. So let's go to Asia and do ministry there. Look what happens. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word where? Oh, we didn't get to go to Asia after all. Okay, where else can we go? When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to end up Bithynia. Well, we can't go to the Lake District in Asia. But over by Bithynia, there's a restaurant over there that's to die for. They, they have steaks this big and they throw rolls at you when you're ready to eat. It is really cool. Let's go there because when we're done with ministry, we'll go have this wonderful meal. Let's go down by Bithynia. Hmm. They tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. Next slide, please. Thank you. During the night, Paul had a vision of, Mas of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Well, I guess we didn't get to go to Asia after all. We didn't get to go to Bithynia, but you know what? We had this wonderful vision to go over to Macedonia. We have this wonderful vision to go and reach 10% of the community around Decatur, and it's going to be really sweet. When we're done, maybe we don't get to the, go to the Lake District, and maybe we don't get to go to that restaurant where they throw the rolls at you, but it's going to be really wonderful. Just like it is in Scripture. 
Look what happens to those guys in Acts chapter 16. After trying to go where they wanted and saying, this is what we're going to do, and God says, no, I want you to go this place. Is it all sweetness? Well, no, not exactly. You can just see the headings that the editors have put in in your Bible. Because they go, and they go off to Philippi, which is basically Macedonia, and they have one preaching event. One preaching event in verse 11, and where do they end up in verse 16? In prison. Well, great God, I'm following you, I'm doing everything you want me to do, and you're going to take me to prison? That doesn't sound very good. Sometimes following God in ministry is really hard. Many times following God in ministry is very hard. We've experienced that here in this church in the past. We've learned that one of the ways in which we adapt to that and one of the ways in which we manage that is to say, we not only accept change when it comes along, but we say, man, it's so hard, we're going to embrace it. We have one of our four core values. We embrace change. We say, okay, if change is coming, rather than us fighting it, rather than us complaining about it, we're going to embrace it and we're going to see if we can manage this and bring it on even faster. As a matter of fact, if you look in your bulletin today or in the pew rack in front of you, there's something in front of you that... We're asking you to consider when it comes to change. We need your help in this. We realize that if we are going to be a congregation that reaches more people, we need to make room in this room for more seats. And um, here's how this works, because I've heard from some, and they struggled a little bit. So you, you get to choose one of four options. Look in, and I need to hear from you today. We need to hear from you in terms of how would you respond to a new worship service schedule? We did this a number of years ago, and that's when you told us to do Saturday night, and I didn't want to hear it, but we did it anyways, and it was successful. I embraced change all the way. Please note that we're asking you, here's what we're asking you to do. We're asking you to choose one of four options. Last night, somebody chose all four options, and a different service in each option. That's probably not what we had in mind. Choose one option and tell us which service you'll go to, all right, in those options, so that we can help make some decisions for the future. Be aware that in option three... There are two 9.30 services at the same time. Two live worship bands in two different rooms in this building. Same preacher. Preacher moving back and forth uh, from week to week. Uh, some weeks be live in one room and by um, closed circuit or video in another room and flipping back and forth. But So that's, please make note of that. And if you would, um, let us know your responses by putting them in the baskets that are at the back of the room on the main floor and at the bottom of the stairs for those who are in the balcony. The point I'm bringing this to you is that we're serious about this endeavor. And if we're going to be serious about this endeavor as a congregation, we've got to do some things differently. And there are specifics that I could talk to you about ministries and cash flow and generosity and costs and other churches and how, we could, how we're looking to get the school districts involved or other community leaders. But before we do all of that, be aware of this. If we're going to ask God to do this through us, we're going to start with prayer. So beginning in October, we're looking at a very extensive prayer series on sermons and small groups and everything. And I want to tell you why we need to be people of prayer taking us full circle back to where we started today. You know, each of those places that I mentioned to you where we saw this incredible beauty, there's also an underside. We see it even here in our, in our own country. Cities of great beauty and great experience also always have an underside. You can go to any of them. 
In some circles, in missiology circles, people who study missions, they refer to territorial spirits that are over cities or over countries. For example, it's where God has created something good and then evil has come along, Satan's come along and twisted something that was good in that city and messed with it and turned it upside down. New Orleans, for example, place of great jazz. But what also is New Orleans known for? Sexuality run amok, right? So in New Orleans, is there a territorial spirit that has, if you will, taken sex, something that God gave us, and moved it upside down, and now the city is based on lust. Think about Las Vegas. Las Vegas is built on what? Greed. Greed is the evil side of drive, isn't it? That we as human beings are, are made by God, created by God, to have some energy and some amb ambition. But when it comes to how Las Vegas is, that territorial spirit has twisted that drive, and turn it into greed. Los Angeles, what's the territorial spirit over Los Angeles? Excess. There's great pleasure that God ordains as good, it's good to enjoy life. But in LA, the territorial spirit has flipped that pleasure upside down and turned it into excess. In New York, it's wealth. It's a good thing to say that we have, God wants to provide for us and live in plenty, but in New York, if you think about how it is run to excess, and it's all about wealth that has run amok. Washington, D.C., what territorial spirit would you name over Washington, D.C.? Think about it. The ability to make decisions is a human trait that's a good trait, right? But in Washington, D.C., it's, I want to make decisions for as many people as I can in a bad, and we see power run amok in that nation in many settings. Territorial spirits take something that's good and flip it upside down and make it bad. What territorial spirit would there be over Decatur? I asked the elders this, this this week. We had a list, poverty, defeat. We have an inferiority complex. There's a sense of hopelessness. Nothing good comes out of Decatur, people would say. Maybe that could all be put this way, that we don't understand our value before God. We have been blinded to our value before God. And God is calling the people of First Christian Church to break through that blindness and help others to choose to follow Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you, it's not easy. If you, if you came to church today expecting to be told it's going to be easier in the wrong congregation, we're going to break down evil strongholds that hold this city. We're going to break down an ethos that holds this city that talks about the undervalue of who people are. Instead, we're going to declare that the ethos of this city is that we are people who are valued by God. And I want to describe it one, one final way that, again, not in any effort to point to anything that I'm not pining for the past in any way. But I want to tell you about a trip in late 79 that I took as part of the group that you're going to see on the screen behind me. Um, we started in Helsinki went across the border into the Soviet Union. This is at the height of the, of the Cold War. Went through Moscow, down through Kiev, all the way down to the Armenian-Iranian border. We were on the border, literally three miles from the Iranian border, thinking of crossing over into Iran. We were told not to on November 4th of 1979. You know what happened on November 4th, 1979? The Iranian hostage crisis began in the American embassy that very day as we were saying, let's go across the border. And somebody from the Armenian Orthodox Church said, there's something going on down there today. You better not go. <laughs> Am I glad we didn't? That trip, a uh, number of weeks long, five weeks long maybe, I'd have to say was 
one of the most difficult trips I've ever taken. When we left Finland and began the drive, it was late fall. By the time we were done, down all the way down to Yerevan, Armenia, and um, it's warm down there. But as soon as we left there, we went up into the mountains. Winter had hit in, winter had come in, and it was horrendous driving. The bus we drove was from Great Britain, which meant that the driver's, if this was the bus, the driver's seat was over here. But in the Soviet Union, they still drive on the right-hand side of the road, like we do here. And so that meant if you're driving the bus, you had to have somebody standing in the stairwell telling with each lorry that you came up against or each donkey cart, it's safe to pass. Very, very extremely scary, particularly in winter and particularly on Soviet roads, which were made very, very poorly. And you never knew if that little lump in the road that you saw coming up might actually be a piece of slab of cement that's 25 feet long that has begun coming up in the cold weather. We would come up on the road sometimes and the, the cement would be sticking up two feet in the air. You can't cross that in a bus at 50 miles an hour very easily with ice on the road too. It was an extremely, extremely difficult trip, just bumping along like that. At one point, one of the windows in the bus got smashed out by a lorry that crossed into our side of the road, and we literally, it was so cold in the bus that our shampoo and our suitcases froze. Sitting there, day after day, traveling back to Helsinki. We were in Kiev in the middle of that, and to make a long story short, because we were, had all this equipment that could, we had equipment that could service about a crowd of about 25,000 people, so it was a lot of equipment. Within the equipment, though, we would always bring things in for the underground church. That particular trip, we'd brought in the lead plates for the printing press of the Russian New Testament. We'd actually smuggled in the printing press previously, and we were bringing in the lead plates along with some other equipment. We're doing a concert in a little Baptist church uh, with the KGB watching us, literally. They'd followed us to the church. And they brought about 100 soldiers and they surrounded the church and they began taking photos of anybody who was in the building. It was literally jam-packed, people standing all the way to the front, all the aisles disappeared. I was sitting on the front of the, uh, front of the stage with this keyboard right here. When I say this keyboard, I mean this keyboard is my Fender Rhodes. It's been around the world a bunch of times. From this, I bought this in 1978. Still using it. I was sitting at that keyboard and a, a, a photographer from the KGB came up, stood about this far from me, and took my photo. What they didn't know, what the KGB didn't, didn't know, is that we were using that concert while it was to minister to the people. It was also a front for what was taking place in the basement of the church. Because as we would brought all that equipment in, they were unloading all the stuff that was inside the equipment cases that were downstairs that, the cage, that we'd brought into the country. Very, very hard trip, very dangerous. If we'd been caught, it was 14 years in the Soviet gulag. We knew that. Helsinki was a whole lot easier. When we, got to the, when we got to the border of Finland and the gate came down, we went across there and immediately within six feet, it was smooth roads, it was western roads. It was like, <sighs> the spirit of oppression is gone. It's a whole lot easier there. But I've got to tell you this, friends. I don't remember a thing about that trip from the border of the Soviet Union all the way back to Great Britain. I don't remember how we got there. I don't know if we got on a ferry in Finland and went across to Copenhagen and drove across Europe to then take it from Belgium over to Dover. I can't remember if we went from, from Helsinki, got on a ferry and went to Sweden, drove across Sweden, and then took the ferry over to, into Dover. I don't remember. Why? Because it was pretty easy. But I remember the hard stuff but also to remember the results of the hard stuff. 
There were a group of young people in that little Baptist church in Kiev, the only, Baptist, the only Protestant church in the city at the time, who looked at us and said, hey, what's with these kids from America? I was 21 years old. How come they're willing to put their lives on the line and we're not doing anything? This is late November now of 1979, and um, a lot of these stories have been kept under wraps for a lot of years because of people involved in uh, just now, 30 years later, they're starting to come out. Um, there was a young guy there who uh, said, if these guys will do this, what could we do? And they said, nobody since World War II has done anything in terms of Christian in the downtown square of Kiev. Let's do a Christmas Eve service in the downtown square of Kiev. It's against the law, but we'll do it. They got their candles and they went downtown Kiev in the snow, Christmas Eve, December 24th. Remember, this is the Soviet Union. They don't celebrate Christmas. All right, Their Christmas is not a day off. And so they held a service downtown Kiev for the first time since World War II. A thousand people showed up, ringed the square, the police on the outside, unwilling and unable to do anything because to have mowed down that many people with their guns would have created an international calamity. I don't remember the trip from the border of Finland to Great Britain, but I remember that church in, Hils in, in Kiev. God's calling us to some big things, friends, some hard things, and I'm in. I'm in. I'm asking you to join me. Would you stand together, please? There's a worship team back there. Come on out, guys. We're going to jump straight to the song, okay? I think they're back there. Come on out, guys. Here they come. Jamie's leading them. What do we expect? Of course she's leading them. We're going to step into a time of prayer. Maybe you'd like to pray about this, about your involvement in this matter. Maybe you'd like to pray about a different matter altogether and something's really on your heart that's really bugging you this week. Or maybe it's something really cool that's in your life this week. I'd like to seal this with time together with some prayer. And so there'll be some leaders from the church here. We'd love to pray with you. And let's see what God's going to do for us and through us in the years ahead. I don't have any great ways in which this is going to be easy, guys. Matter of fact, everything that we're coming up with is going to be hard. It's going to be worth it. We're going to see our city come to Christ. I'd like you to, today, if you've in need, to come and bring it to Christ. You come as the worship team leads us.